The following message is by Pastor Brandon Dyer of Windsor Christian Fellowship. For more information on our church, visit www.windsorchristianfellowship.org. Just about 500 years ago, on October 31st, 1517, one of the most significant events in the history of the church happened. The church had endured through what we commonly know as the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages from 500 to 1500 or so. And the church, although it had endured through that time span, it was massively corrupt. The Church of Rome had all kinds of power over people. The popes, they lived like kings. The people were incredibly, in general, they were incredibly uneducated. In many places, like we even saw last week with William Tyndale trying to translate the Bible to get God's word into the hands of the common people. In many places, the the common person like you and me didn't have a copy of God's word. Didn't have the scriptures even in their own language. The common folk were being manipulated into buying what were called indulgences, which the church said that if you purchased an indulgence, it would help spring somebody from purgatory more quickly. It would get them out of purgatory. So buy the indulgence, and it would help your family member or your friend who would be in purgatory. So you have the original faulty doctrine of purgatory, some kind of middle ground between heaven and hell. And then you have the sale of these indulgences on top of it, which supposedly got people out of purgatory and into heaven. So 500 years ago, there was a monk named Martin Luther, and he was very upset about all of this. So he wrote what were called the 95 Theses, and he went up to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, and he nailed these 95 Theses to the Catholic church door in this town. And this one act rattled the world. I mean, you've heard of of the shot heard around the world with the Revolutionary War. This was the theological shot heard around the world. This one act started a process uh, by which Luther was questioned and sought after. There were times where he certainly faced death and and obvious questioning and people quizzing him and, and trying to get into why he was doing what he was doing. And then four years after he nailed these 95 theses to the church door... He was to stand before what was called the diet of worms. And this has nothing to do with having a diet of worms. A diet was an assembly in a place called worms, or I suppose the Germans would say worms. And it was at this diet that Luther was asked about a stack of books. They brought out this stack of books, placed it on the table, and they basically said to him, Are these books yours? Do, th- do these belong to you? Did you write these? Do you believe the teachings that you wrote about within these books? And Luther didn't answer right away. A lot of times we have this opinion that he immediately stood up, said, Absolutely, they're mine. He actually said, I'm going to take some time. Give me a day, I'll come back, and I'll give you an answer. So they gave it to him. He comes back the following day, and this is what Luther says, surrounded by this assembly of extremely important men, asking him if those books were his. Here is what Luther said. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures, or by evident reason, for I can believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis My conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus I cannot and will not recant. Because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Amen. Luther was convinced 
by God's word. His conscience was bound to it. And he could not and he would not recant. He would not apologize for what he had written that he believed to be in line with God's word. So I open this morning's sermon with that because October 31st was yesterday. So it's kind of an anniversary of sorts. But for a second reason as well. The man that we're going to be looking at within this morning's passage is a lot like Martin Luther. The at least concerning his his resolve to stand. His resolve to stand for what the Word of God said, and his name, as we have read, is John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who we have learned about already in our series in Matthew, has gotten himself into a little bit of trouble with the ruler over this area. His name was Herod. He was the Tetrarch. He wasn't exactly the monarch. He wasn't the only ruler in Israel at this time. But he was a Tetrarch. He was one of the rulers. And John the Baptist had gotten himself into a little bit of hot water by calling out this Tetrarch on the way he was living. So as we've already even detected within Matthew's gospel, John the Baptist, he's not your normal guy. He's not a guy that's going to mince words. He's not the guy that's going to be shy about anything. He's going to come out and say what he needs to say. But we also know that John was a man of conviction and humility. He he didn't care if this Herod, this Tetrarch ruler over there, he didn't care that he was the ruler. His conscience was bound to the Word of God. And so having a conscience bound to the Word of God meant calling out this ruler who was not acting in line with it. So as we come into this morning's passage, the result of of John calling out this ruler is being put into prison. So as we come into Matthew chapter 11, John is already in prison prison because of calling out Herod, which is unfortunate when we consider where and why we originally met, in, met John in Matthew's gospel. We took that time, you remember, in, in Matthew chapter 3 to, to carefully look at John the Baptist, saw what kind of man that he is. Again, he's, he's not your normal guy. He was off in the wilderness preaching and teaching those who would come out to hear him. Uh, you remember, his, he would eat locusts. Uh, so comment about diet of worms. Well, he actually would eat something kind of gross. He would eat locusts. He would eat wild honey. He was dressed in that camel fur. You just imagine a really rugged looking dude. But his work that he was doing was to prepare the way for the Messiah. He had a high responsibility to prepare the way for Christ. So as he's in the wilderness, he would cry out, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at near, telling the people of Israel to turn and to repent and to believe in the one who was coming, to believe and to to come into the kingdom of heaven. In the end of chapter 3, there's this incredible account again with John interacting with Jesus. Jesus comes to him and says, I I want you to baptize me. And John, in, in his humility, he backs away and says, I'm not going to baptize you. I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you. That kind of great humility that he should have had. After a little bit of chatter, Jesus eventually gets him to go ahead and do it. And so as they're in the water, they baptize, John baptizes Jesus. And then the heavens open. You remember the heavens open? The Spirit of God descends upon Jesus. This voice comes out of heaven. That's the Father saying, Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son in whom I delight. And so John has this opportunity to see and to hear and to touch and to 
really be in the presence of this Trinitarian situation where you have Jesus, the, the three members of the Godhead, with Jesus, the Spirit coming down, and the voice of God. I mean, it would have been incredible to be a part of that. Can you imagine being the one to baptize John, standing in the water as all of this is happening? You would have imagined that having this opportunity would have completely bolstered John's faith for life. That, I mean, can you imagine? You having that opportunity, wouldn't you walk away thinking, man, I'm never going to doubt again. I'm never going to think twice about the reality of God or him being who he says he is. We would never doubt again, so we would think. Yet in this morning's passage, we see that John questions if Jesus is really the Messiah. Look again in verse 2. Now when John heard in prison... About the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So I think John was genuinely discouraged. He was genuinely disheartened. He was confused. I think it's because he lacked understanding. He didn't fully understand what Christ was doing. He had heard of the deeds of Christ, but he didn't quite understand how that meshed with what he thought the Messiah was going to come and to do. Was this kingdom that Jesus was bringing, was this kingdom going to be a spiritual kingdom? Or was this kingdom going to be a physical kingdom? John believed that it was to be a physical kingdom. Jesus was going to come as the Messiah who was going to raise up a physical kingdom to overthrow Rome. To to get rid of the oppression that they had long been under from the Roman Empire. So John is thinking to himself, okay, Jesus is doing all of these deeds. I've heard of all of the things that he's doing. But where's this kingdom? Where's this physical kingdom that I'm expecting to come up? Because if that kind of kingdom comes up, then I'm expecting a a get-out-of-jail-free card. right? You play Monopoly. Right? You, you would imagine that as that grows, that I'm going to be able to get out of prison. So John thought that he understood what Christ was doing on earth. But as he sits in prison for about a year at this point, what he thinks about Jesus and what Jesus is doing does not match up with what he thinks should be happening. So what he does is he sends two of his disciples off to Christ in order to question Jesus on if he is the one who is to come or if we should look for another. You know, you and I can fall into the same kind of trap that John the Baptist found himself in. Or maybe like last week where we looked a lot at persecution and the idea that we could become highly persecuted. And in those times we would wonder, what is God doing? Why is God allowing me to be persecuted right now? Where we're in those kinds of situations where we just don't get it. Why would God allow me to be persecuted? I thought that God wanted good things to happen to me in in certain senses. I thought that that his believers, those who trusted him, would receive comfort and and not be constantly persecuted uh, or different things. Like I thought God's plan was to make things right in the world. I thought God was just going to pull all the evil out of the world. And so why is evil befalling me? Why is evil coming to me? Or maybe when it comes to Christ, you have times like John where you actually wonder... Is Jesus really who he said that he is? Is Jesus really the Messiah? Is he the one who was to come? And maybe you don't have the the resolve that you feel like you need to have. A good Christian would would never doubt, would never think twice about Jesus. 
But maybe you find yourself in that kind of a situation where you just sit down sometimes and you put your head down at night and you, just, you wonder, is all of this real? Is all of this true? And that's you. I don't want you walking away this morning feeling that you have some sort of deep gouge or deep stain on your character because you have had those thoughts. Some of the greatest saints, you scan the Bible, some of the greatest saints in God's word have had their doubts and they've struggled like John. But what is so important to see here is that although John is confused, although he doesn't quite understand what Jesus is doing and why he is doing it, who does he go to in order to receive answers? He goes to Christ. He goes to Jesus to receive the answers that that he needs. So he goes to Jesus. He went to the Christ. He went to the one who had all of the answers. So do you? Is that what you do? When you're in those periods of doubt, when you do put your head down at night, and you wonder, is all of this real? Where does your mind fly? Do you eventually get to Jesus? Do you look to Christ for the answers and for the hope when you're in a situation that you don't quite understand, or you're struggling with that kind of a doubt? It's so easy in those times to begin just looking at ourselves. That you're doubting. Then we just get all introspective and just analyze ourselves and and look inside. Or we get into these kinds of situations and we start acting like we're on a... Who who wants to be a millionaire? The good days when Regis was on it. (laughs) Where I'm in a difficult situation. So I'm going to phone a friend. I'm in a difficult situation. So I'm going to poll the audience. Or maybe take a 50-50. God, will you give me a 50-50 so I can just make this a little bit easier? And we get that way when we're in a problem we don't understand. Whether we're looking at ourselves or looking to the, the next closest person to us or we're polling all of our friends or we're going on to Google, give me an answer. Whatever it is, are you going to Christ first? Is that where you're ultimately going to receive your answers and your guidance? Are you going to Christ as revealed in His Word? So that as you're going through those times that you don't understand, and you're going through a time of persecution or hardship or whatever it is, that you're coming to Christ, that you're running to Him. John the Baptist was looking for answers, but he was looking for answers from Jesus. And look how Jesus responds in verse 4. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. And the poor, they have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. All of these things that Jesus mentions here can be found within the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah long foretold that the Messiah would come and that the Messiah would do these great miracles. Notice that Jesus doesn't retort to John. So John asks this of Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, well, duh. Duh, I'm obviously the Messiah. You've even mentioned that you know of my deeds. Don't you realize that I am quite obviously him? He doesn't come back like kind of the Old Testament situations we've seen. And Jesus says, I am who I am. He doesn't come back even with a statement like that. He comes back essentially quoting the Old Testament to John concerning the things that the Messiah was to do. Basically what he does in his response to John is tell him to remember the word of God. Remember what God's word says about the Messiah. He's reminding John that the Messiah was going to 
come and to do all of these great works. And if John had only remembered what the prophets had foretold, then he would have known that Jesus was clearly the Messiah. So Jesus is bringing John's thought process, regardless of his terrible situation in prison, he's bringing his thought process in line with the word of God. Jesus is correcting John, telling him to understand the Messiah in line with the scripture and not let his circumstance in prison dictate his thoughts on the Messiah. We do this all the time, don't we? We let our situation, the problem, the struggle, the hardship, the persecution, whatever it is, we let that dictate how we think about Jesus. Instead of letting God's word, what it says about Jesus, dictate how we ought to react while we're in these difficult situations. There are things that happen to us that we wish wouldn't, but our understanding of Jesus in those times cannot conform to our personal situation. Instead, our situation must be conformed to the knowledge of Christ. Jesus closes out his words to John essentially with a beatitude. You remember the beatitudes in the beginning of Matthew chapter 5? Blessed are the merciful, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those, all that. Jesus basically gives another beatitude in Matthew chapter 5. He says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I see this as a a sort of rebuke to John. Like if you are struggling with being merciful to other Christians. You open Matthew chapter 5 and you read, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And you say, yes, Lord, thank you. I needed that. I'm struggling with being merciful. And I know as a kingdom person, as a follower of you, that I must be merciful and will receive mercy. And you say, thank you, Lord, for the rebuke. And thank you for showing me the truth. I, I think Jesus is showing John the truth here and giving him a slight rebuke with it. Blessed are you, John, if you are not offended by me. One commentator said this, ultimate blessing rests on those who submit to Christ even when they do not understand his ways in their life. But this is so hard to do. Submitting to Christ and his plan, even when you don't understand and you don't know why and you don't know what is going on, yet this is where the blessing rests as we trust him in those kinds of situations. After these disciples of John come to Jesus and question him, Jesus turns to the crowd and he begins to teach them about John the Baptist. So John's doubting, he's in prison, he's been in that struggle for a year. He sends his disciples to Jesus to ask him these questions. And after he answers those questions, he turns to this crowd that was apparently there and he begins to teach them about this great John the Baptist. So even though he's in prison and he's having that struggle and he's going through that battle, not quite understanding the whole, what, the whole circle of his whole circumstances, Jesus turns and now look what he says about Jesus or about John. He begins to really hold him up. He begins to talk highly of him, which is interesting that a lot of times when we think, man, I am such a failure and doubting God and Christ comes and he holds us up. But before we get to where Jesus talks about him, I actually want you to turn back to the book of Malachi. Malachi is the last, the last book in the Bible, or the last book of the Old Testament, so it's really only a few pages away from where you are right now. So it goes Malachi, then you probably have a page in between your Old and New Testament. Look at, with me at Malachi chapter 3. 
Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Okay, so keep those words in your mind. Now turn over to Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Okay, so now with those two verses in mind, come back to Matthew 11, and we'll begin reading in verse 7. So behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Keep that in mind. Come to Matthew chapter 11 and verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you in more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you. So Jesus quotes that Malachi passage. Okay, now come down to verse 13 in Matthew 11. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him here. So this is just stellar to me. The last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, talks about this messenger who is to come and to prepare the way for the Lord of hosts. It also says that the one who is going to be sent is Elijah the prophet, which to the readers of Malachi, they would have said, okay, well, Elijah didn't die. He got into the chariots of fire. You remember that Old Testament account in Kings? He gets into the chariots of fire. The chariots take him up into heaven, so Elijah didn't die. In other words, he's going to come back and be this messenger that Malachi is talking about. That's what the original readers would have thought. So after Malachi writes that, 400 years are in between the Old and the New Testaments. 400 years between Malachi and Jesus' birth. And then all of a sudden, we come to Matthew chapter 3, and we hear this voice crying out in the wilderness, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But it's not the voice of Elijah, in, in, in bodily form, actual Elijah standing there. This is the voice of John the Baptist. But again, not really just the voice of John the Baptist. This is the voice of Elijah. In Luke chapter 1, it, it says that John the Baptist was going to serve in the spirit of Elijah. And so here, Jesus clearly says that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of these prophecies from Malachi. John the Baptist is the Elijah who would come and prepare the way for Jesus' kingdom. While I was studying this, I I, I knew this, but as I was studying this and going through these verses, I almost couldn't keep the giddy, cheesy, nerdy theology smile off my face because it's just incredible to see all that God has done with John the Baptist as Elijah being the fulfillment of all of this, coming and preparing the way for Jesus' kingdom. This is mind-blowing, prophecy-fulfilling stuff. And we have Jesus explaining it to us, that the prophecy and the fulfillment concerning his relative and forerunner, John the Baptist. It's absolutely incredible that John the Baptist is the one who would come and prepare the way for Jesus, prepare the way for for the kingdom, prepare the way for even the new covenant. Now, I, 
I hesitate because in some ways this was a game time decision. As you can see, it's highlighted in yellow. And I'm going to go ahead and say it. <laughs> it's a quick admonition. It's a little bit of a soapbox too. That's why I'm probably a little hesitant. But when it comes to prophecy, be careful. Be careful about prophecy. We see this with Jesus, bringing up these passages in Malachi, talking about the fulfillment of those passages. And it's great because Jesus cannot be wrong when it comes to the interpretation. So we read it and we say, this is, this is awesome. It's very clear. But Jesus is the one doing the interpreting so we can have confidence. But prophecy, when handled by certain people, can be incredibly dangerous. Really dangerous. The bottom line is that prophecy, when you go into your Christian bookstores, prophecy sells big time. That's why there's just a never-ending supply of books about prophecy. Let me be more clear. Books on prophecy that that we just looked at, like with John the Baptist and Jesus interpreting it, and it's all crystal clear, that, those books don't sell. But the books, when it's prophecy, coupled with speculation, those books sell fast. Probably most recently with even the whole blood moon thing. Everybody was out taking pictures of the blood moon, and there were these people talking about the blood moon and how this is happening on this certain day, which means that the end of the world is coming. coming. And so the end of the world didn't end up happening, so those people end up looking really, really strange. And unfortunately, since we're Christians too, we get thrown in with a lot of it. And so they get some sort of book, and they write some sort of book because they know the blood moon's going to happen because NASA told them that it was going to end up happening. And so he gets, a, you know, these different guys get national TV spots on the news channels and all that, talk about the end of the world, and got all these people scared about the end of the world coming. And then it doesn't happen, and then they look foolish. So prophecy, when handled by the wrong people, when it's prophecy coupled with speculation, very dangerous, be careful, okay? Off soapbox. But look back at verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So the disciples of John come to Jesus. They get their answer from him. Jesus turns to the crowd. He begins to teach the crowds concerning John. And contained in this teaching is the incredible statement that nobody up until that point had been born among women who was greater than John the Baptist. However, those who were coming, those who were being, going to be part of the kingdom, the, the new covenant that was on its way, they would be greater than he. So no one has been born among women that is greater than John the Baptist. But those of you who are coming into my kingdom and my new covenant, you will be greater. The least of you is going to be greater than the greatest who has been born among women. This is incredible. John played this extremely important role. He was significant in being a prophet and being a forerunner to Jesus. And, but the problem was that he had not, and that what's unfortunate for him is he did not live to see the day when Jesus would die on the cross. When Jesus would rise again, establishing his new covenant. But you and I, the least of us even, we are part of this. If we have trusted in Christ, we have been brought in to this new covenant. covenant. And Jesus says that as such, we are greater than John. 
Not because of anything good within us, but with what he has gifted to us. What he has given to us in Christ. Look finally at verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you when you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Jesus is standing before these crowds and he compares this generation to that of school children who sit around calling out to their friends. Speaking of him and John the Baptist, figuratively, they played the flute and they didn't dance. They sang the dirge. They didn't mourn. In other words, this generation could not be satisfied. John the Baptist couldn't satisfy them. And Jesus couldn't satisfy them. They couldn't please this generation. They didn't like John because they assumed that he had some sort of demon. They didn't like Jesus because they thought he was a glutton and a drunk. And he hung out with all of these wicked people. Yet Jesus lays it right down and says, Wisdom is justified by her deeds. As one commentator put it, both John and Jesus in their different ways have displayed practical wisdom, which is thus justified over and against the criticism of those who represent a more conventional lifestyle. I want to go back as we close and think about John, specifically in the situation where he was in that prison. He's sitting in this dark, wet, unsanitary cell for a year, wondering about Jesus. And when I think about him in that kind of situation, I see me. Maybe you see yourself there. We have those times where you wonder where Jesus is. You wonder where God is. Wondering why, although we have dedicated so much of ourselves in His calling of us, and we have committed our way unto Him, and we want to follow Him, we want to love Him, and we want to please Him, and all of that, yet He still allows us to spend times in periods of darkness. And Jesus says, let me remind you of God's Word. I'm the prophet long foretold. I'm the one that the whole Old Testament speaks of. From the first and the prophet Abel all the way up to John the Baptist speaking of me. Let me remind you of God's word. That the prophet Isaiah said that the blind would receive their sight and the lame would walk and the lepers would be cleansed and the deaf would hear and the dead would be raised up and people would have the gospel, the good news preached to them. Is this not good news? Is this not great? Blessed are we who are not offended by Christ. And if you are a member of the kingdom of God this morning, you have received everything in Christ and you are considered even greater than the greatest prophet of all in John the Baptist. If you are in a period of doubt like John or an especially difficult life season or a period of doubt, thinking these different ways and struggling and battling with thoughts about God in that doubt, really inevitable. And that's okay. I think all of us desire to be able to open up our shirt and there's a big S there for super Christian where we never have any doubt, we never have any pain, we never have any struggle, but the reality is that most of us do and most of us will go through these. So confide in one another over these things. Confide and express it mostly to the Lord. Coming to Him, I think sometimes we're a little bit of afraid to do that. 
afraid to come to him and say, Lord, I'm doubting you. But he will not be disappointed in you. He He will lift you up. He will not cast you aside. He loves you. He has bought you. He has forgiven you. So fly to Jesus and be resolved to trust in him alone completely, regardless of your life circumstances and the trials that may come. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the example of John and how so often we find ourselves right in those same situations. God, I pray that you'll give grace as we and those among us may be in periods of doubt or struggle. Give them specific comfort, reminding them that they are yours, that they are great because of all that you have done for them in Christ. Being a part of your work, your kingdom on earth now, and we are thankful for that great honor and responsibility and privilege, something that we completely do not deserve, but you have given to us in Christ. Not great in and of ourselves, but great because he is within us. Thank you for the example of John. Thank you for the encouraging words of Christ. Pray this all in his name. Thank you for listening to this message by Brandon Dyer, pastor of Windsor Christian Fellowship in Windsor, Maine. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge them or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our church online at www.windsorchristianfellowship.org. There, you'll find sermons and other information about our church. If you have a need or would like further information, call 242-0126 or email us at wcfmaine at gmail.com. Our mailing address is Windsor Christian Fellowship, 11 Reed Road, Windsor, Maine, 04363. Windsor Christian Fellowship exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ through the evangelization of unbelievers and the edification of believers so that all might be glad in God.